Founder Coffee. Every two weeks, I have coffee with a different founder. We discuss life, passions, learnings, in an intimate talk, getting to know the person behind the company. For this 31st episode, I talked to Omer Molat, co-founder of Vervo, a leading hiring solution that enables you to hire employees based on their skills instead of their experience. After his military service in Israel, Omer worked at a few startups. After this, he moved back to Australia, where he used to live as a kid. He then went to law school and worked at big companies and management positions for many years. It was only after a chat with his co-founder David that they decided to start their own adventure in Launch Vervo. The starting point? Conversation about how the top performers in their teams weren't the ones with the best resumes. We talk about his pivot from small to big companies, about how to focus on the journey step by step, his chaotic schedule, uh, and how he started trusting his team, stepping away, and empowering people. Welcome to Founder Coffee. Hi, Omer. It's great to have you on Founder Coffee. Hi, Jeroen. Great to be here. You are co-founder of, of Vervu. For those who don't know Vervu, what do you guys do? Yeah, so our mission is to make hiring about merit and not backgrounds. We're a skills assessment platform, and what that means is that Instead of companies using things like resumes to decide who to hire, we show them how candidates perform tasks that are relevant to the job. And so they can see candidates doing things like exercises in Excel or editing a sales deck um, or, or handling a customer or writing code or really anything that's related to the job. And then that helps them make a decision on who's actually going to be good at at the job that they're trying to fill. Yeah. Is this mostly standard tests that you guys provide or is it also custom tests and what is kind of the, the, the ratio between the two? Yeah, it's actually uh, almost all custom and we believe very strongly that it should be uh, custom and context dependent. And that's because if you think about it, a graphic designer who works at a, say, a Series A startup versus a graphic designer who works at you know, a major accounting firm, they're very different jobs. They, there will be some overlap in skill, but it's a very different type of environment to work in, different risk parameters and speed and um, people you have to deal with. And so we create, we um, instantly create bespoke or custom assessments based on uh, the requirements that our customers have for the job. Yeah. And, and, and if I'm not mistaken, you sell this through a SaaS model, right? So price per month? Yeah, that's right. It's a SaaS delivery model and our customers are mainly mid-market and enterprise. So yeah. <clears throat> um, up to a certain price point, we have monthly, um, but most of our, probably 80 to 85% of our uh, revenue is um, over sort of six to 12 month contracts, usually mm -hmm. 12 months. Um, but it's a, yeah, but it's still, it's, it's SaaS and we charge based on the number of hires. Uh, so, so typically companies tell us how many people they need to hire and um, that's the main variable off which we price. Ah, uh, okay. And then you you guys start creating uh, specific content for these hires for that price. 
so what what the way it works is um, we have pre-existing content. We have over eighty thousand questions and tasks mm-hmm. in our library, um, and our clients have two options. One is if they have an existing way of testing that they like, that they use offline, they can bring it onto our platform. So we have a content builder. Um, Or most commonly, they tell us what they're looking for um, and a test is automatically generated for them um, out of Mm -hmm. that huge library of questions. So, So we use natural language processing to do that. We ask them to describe the the person they want to hire they'll they'll write something like i want to hire a graphic designer with a growth mindset and very strong sketch skills or whatever um and then our ai assembles a test for them uh, and then they can swap questions in or out um and then they'll deliver that'll be delivered to candidates they'll complete it and then we automatically grade it um our machine learning models will automatically grade the the completed assessment yeah how did you actually come to this idea because if i'm not mistaken you didn't come from let's say the hr sector or industry yeah that's right in fact both founders of the company david and i are industry outsiders um which has made it um in some respects difficult in other respects you know we sort of have a fresh perspective on things we we both experienced the hiring problem um ourselves and there are a few things that happen so i i actually grew up in tel aviv and i i went to a very good high school i served in the military i worked at a couple of startups and then in my early 20s i moved to australia and i applied to about 100 jobs and couldn't get an interview i didn't have a degree and no one could pronounce my name <laughs> and and I and and sort of my 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 so-called credentials um, or resume, which was good in Israel, wasn't really valued, and I found that very frustrating to be eliminated and you know disqualified and not even given a chance to get in the room. Um, and then years later, I was running a very big team and um, in, in a big bank, and David was running a big team at. Um, in in the valley and we we sort of had this uh conversation about how you know the top performers in our team aren't the ones who went to the best university or or have the best resume and conversely we keep interviewing all these people with very fancy resumes and they they don't end up being the best people Uh, and at the time we were inspired by matt mullenweg the founder of automatic the company that invented wordpress and what they were doing over there was auditions. Um, they, they weren't even using technology. They were just like literally bringing people in to, to do a project uh, with and working on something together. And we thought what a great way to actually um, get to know someone and make a hiring decision. And that inspired us to basically take the concept of an audition but bring it online and do it for a lot of people simultaneously, you know, fast and, and based on data. And that's really it. And then we sort of started researching this topic and started building something. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, we, we actually at Salesflare, we also uh, try to do this, but it's, it's mostly with developers that it's easy to do, like to give a task in and see how it's performed. Uh, but for other positions, it's often very difficult 
Um, I don't know how you guys deal with it then because the, the, the tasks are way less uh, concrete and, and more difficult to check on the, the quality. Yeah, it, right. So longer time or it, yeah, so that you're right. So um, coding is a very common way uh, that the sort of engineering industry has embraced this method of um, evaluating people early. Another another industry is the film industry. Um, that, that's how you get you know that's how you get a job in in a movie or a TV show. You audition for the job, mm-hmm. um, and, and but in everything else, it's kind of uh, very traditional. And so we recognize very early that we don't know how to test for every, we're not experts in every job. So what we did was we built a, a library. We, we used um, content from experts. So we, we attracted people who are um, experts in a certain industry. It can be marketing, it can be sales, customer service, whatever, design, and, or, or even psychologists or recruiters. Um, and we ask them to create content and we have a model where we, uh, share revenue with them. So it's, it's a content marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's sort of how we created all this content. We built very immersive functionality. So video, audio, multiple choice, we embedded the Google app suite. So you can, um, ask candidates to do work in Google sheets or slides or docs and, um, and then we added code testing functionality. So v- very sort of dynamic. Um, and then in terms of how do you know what's a right answer? Um, so what we then did was our machine learning uh, basically starts by analyzing candidate behavior. And what I mean by that is if you think about, uh, imagine uh, a group interview scenario or an assessment center where you're watching over people's shoulder all day and looking how they interact and how they do tasks. We kind of do the digital version of that. So we collect 68 data points from each candidate, not personal data, but things like typing speed, how long it takes them, um, when they start, you know, all sorts of things. We analyze the transcripts from their video responses. And we then looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of candidates and we looked at how they're behaving and what scores hiring managers and recruiters are giving them and detected very clear patterns. And so we can now uh, basically take any assessment, no matter how bespoke, and we can predict the score that a human will give with about 80% accuracy. So that allows us to instantly auto grade anything. And then once the employer starts grading, we learn from their preferences and start recalibrating. Mm-hmm. Cool. How did it actually happen that you um, like do all these things in Israel, like military service and stuff, and then decide to move to to Australia? What, what was kind of the motivation behind that? Yeah. So I, when I was four and a half years old, my family. I, I was born in Tel Aviv, and when I was four and a half, we moved to Melbourne, Australia, and lived here for. Oh, okay. seven and a half years. So I had, I had a portion of my childhood here and then we, and then we went back to Israel and I did high school in the military. So I was kind of a, a gypsy, you know, as a child, I sort of moved back and forth a few times. Um, and, and so that was kind of good and bad. It was tougher because kept moving schools and you never really kind of, I never really knew where I belonged. 
but I, but I, it really gave me a perspective, a global perspective. And I grew up in two very different countries. And I felt like after, after I finished the military, I needed a change in scenery um, and more, more than a vacation. And I moved to Melbourne and instantly loved it and just felt more comfortable here in terms of the, the culture. Um, and then I ended up going to law school and I met my wife and, you know, life kind of takes over and I, you know, I, I love living here. It's a, it's a great place to live. Yeah. And then, uh, somehow from law school, you ended up in, in a bank or. Yeah. So I, I, I spent most of my career working at big companies with the mm -hmm. exception of two years, there was a two-year period where I worked at Red Cross in the humanitarian sector. But most of my career, I worked in, in banking. And um, uh, in Israel, I worked at a couple startups, but as an employee, this is the first startup for me as a founder. But I had a, a very strong sense um, for the last, particularly the last few years, that I was kind of a bit lost in, I, I sort of didn't want to be in a big company anymore and really reached a point where I wanted to create my own job and, and, and build a company and lead a company. And mm -hmm. I didn't quite know how to do that. It took me a while to figure out how to make that happen, but it was very obvious to me that that's the path that I need to go down. Yeah. So, so right after your studies, you worked in a few uh, startups and then took a huge startup break to now get back there again, you could say. Yeah, it's funny because like after the army, I worked at a couple of startups. That was the instinctive thing for me to do. And in Israel, it was very easy because there are mm -hmm. so many. Um, and then I kind of moved to Melbourne and somehow went to law school and ended up in really big companies. And yeah. part of it's environmental because in Australia, certainly back then, there were basically no startups. And in Israel, you bump into entrepreneurs in the street. Like it's just the whole country's full. It's kind of like Silicon Valley. So I think part of it was society, sort of the environment I was in. And part of it was just I hadn't quite found the right journey for me. It took me a little while to get, to get there. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Um. If if I'm if I would ask you like um, who inspired you the most in the in the startup sphere or it can be a, a friend or it can be some uh, some some person you follow who would that be for you? Oh, there are I mean there are so many. Um, it, it really depends. I mean I, I I read a lot and listen to a lot of podcasts so. Um, for example, I, I love Seth Godin's Alt MBA. Um, mm. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts about sales or about company building. Um, I, I uh, listen to a lot of podcasts about the industry that, that we're in, so recruitment. Um, and, and, and particularly, I like to learn from um, people who've built Uh, fast-growing companies um, and have done it the hard way, not not necessarily the ones who kind of Silicon Valley and raise money from Sequoia. But I like to um, to to sort of see the the less orthodox parts. 
Um, and, and look, on a personal level, um, you know, my team, my co-founder, my team, um, I don't need to go outside our company for inspiration. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have people, the, the, white, the amount of work, the, the team works so incredibly hard and some of the sacrifices that people have had to make on this kind of roller coaster journey that we're on, um, that, you know, that is the inspiration. But I, I'm always learning from people outside, outside the company as well. Yeah. You briefly touched uh, company building. Um, how, how do you look at that when you think about Vervu and uh, what is kind of the approach you take there? What is the, the, the thing you see in the future? Yeah, so I, I mean, I like to educate myself on different areas that are, are the problems we're trying to solve at a particular time. So, for example, um, the, the first problem was, I know it's a cliche to say product market fit, but essentially validating demand, getting the first customers and answering the question of does someone actually want this, this thing that we built. And when we were trying to do that and get our first 10 customers, I was obsessed with that. And that's all I, I, you know, I consumed so much material. I wanted to learn from um, anything I could on how to get those first 10 customers because that's, that's all that mattered. Um, and, and then, um, you know, once, once we did that, um, we had to validate the next thing. Um, so I focused on that and I'll give you an example later on. So then when we decided to build a sales team, I had to learn everything about how to build a sales team, how to hire salespeople, how, how to compensate salespeople. And comp is like a whole, you could do a PhD just on remuneration in sales. Um, and, and, and how, what are the different types of selling and how to build a repeatable sales process. So I, I spoke to CEOs, I spoke to VPs of sales, I read, I listened, I did so many things, um, you know, and now I'm trying to solve a different problem. Now we're sort of thinking about, you know, we're raising money and we're scaling and um, thinking about like building culture across geographies. And so I'm educating myself on that. And it's hard to think too far ahead. So I typically try and um, become an expert in kind of the st- the problem that we're going through right now, or kind of the next stage of growth, um, and and understand how to be really good at that. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe back to for 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 the listeners that are building a company right now. Um, back to the the product market fit uh, part. Uh, what a, where a lot of startups are struggling. What was kind of your biggest learning there going through that process? Yeah, so we, we made a couple of mistakes early on. One was we, we were too quick to try and build something um, scalable, repeatable, automated, and, and we probably early on should have invested more time in just doing things that aren't repeatable, like literally just going and talking to come to trying to get one customer at a time. Okay. Not, not, not like implementing intercom and trying to like have repeatable stuff and none of that really matters. Um, we, 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 we were probably too clever and we, we really should have just gone and tried to talk to like a hundred people 
and tried to get one customer at a time. That's ultimately what we did. But um, I think early, early on, um, we probably invested too much in trying to have something scalable. The other mistake we made was we, we weren't good in the beginning at explaining um, the value of what we do. And it took us a little while. And so then we sent the wrong message. People would come to the website and, you know, think we sell apples and turns out we sell oranges. And so then, you know, it it would confuse them. And so what would happen is we'd attract the wrong people or we'd attract the right people, but they, they then um, come into the product and be disappointed or or like confused or whatever. So we we basically had to um, figure out, um, that we, we kind of, it's easier to figure out how to talk to someone, but it's harder. I think I see a lot of people making this mistake that doesn't translate to the way you write or what you put on your website. Mm-hmm. And we sort of realized that like, okay, we actually can figure out how to explain this in person, but then the website says something totally different. And how can you actually write the way you speak? And once we started communicating through all our channels, uh, communicating the right message, the right story, things started to click and people would say, yes, this is a problem that I have and you solve it. Now let mm-hmm. me see if, if this is good for me and whether I'm willing to pay for this. And I think they're the only things that matter in the beginning, just getting to the right people, understanding that you solve their problem, communicating to them that you do solve their problem and then are they willing to try it? That, that's like all that matters in the very beginning. Yeah. So you think it's talking to people, understanding, um, like f- fine-tuning your messaging while talking to them. Uh, and exactly. then exactly. translate that into sort of repeatable marketing messages that are as close as possible to that, to that real conversation you're having. Exactly. As close as possible to that real conversation and using customer language, uh, Mm -hmm. listening to the words that they're using and actually writing in a way that is closer to where you talk and more natural um, and then understanding sort of who's your audience. And another another thing that happened to us is, so we got that right and something crazy happened. We started getting all this demand, but it was from very different um, once we got our positioning right, we started getting all this interest, but it was from a different place to what we thought it would be. So we thought that that the market was going to be lots and lots and lots of kind of small businesses. Mm-hmm. And s- small businesses do have a problem in hiring, but they're not hiring frequently. They hire a few times a year and they don't have a budget and they don't have a dedicated person to do that. Um, large companies, they have a talent acquisition function and a budget and they're thinking about this problem. And what we realized was once we started communicating properly what we do and the value of the problem we solve, we got a ton of interest from very big companies and we were totally unprepared for that. Um, And so all of a sudden we had massive companies come to us and want to work with us, but they had all these like demands like data sovereignty and insurance and security and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and we were, we were kind of like, okay, wow. Like now we're attracting, now we know where the demand's coming from, but we haven't sort of prepared ourselves to meet that demand, which is a, by the way, a great problem to have, 
but you'll only discover that when you're actually kind of sending the right message. Yeah. But you, you, you got the message by talking to small companies. Or? We, yeah, we got the message by, we started talking to small companies. They were our first customers. We translated that to the website and then the, then sort of SEO started to kick in. So big companies started arriving and we also went to um, a conference as an experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, two other founders twisted my arm and I just thought this is a waste of time. And uh, anyway, I went in the end and we did this competition, um, this kind of pitch competition. And it was crazy. Like we had people lining up at our booth after that. Mm-hmm. And we got, we got massive customers. And, and then we realized, okay, you know, that's where the interest is and big companies, they talk to each other. Um, and, and all these things kind of that we did by accident, um, but we did them in the right way, uh, completely changed the, the, the way that we were sort of, um, you know, attracting interest in the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe, maybe with, with customer interviews early on, you could have included big companies and come to the same conclusion. Uh, I, I, mean, I think, it's been a lot yeah, of things like that right. in startups, but uh, <laughs> I, I think that's right. And I also think, um, you know, there's the traction book, which talks about the bullseye method and the 19 different traction channels. I think most founders have read that. And if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Um, you, you know, it's so true. Like we, we did try um, a number of different channels in the beginning and um, and we continue to, but now we have a really strong sense of what works and where to invest. Uh, but the channels that worked, that ultimately worked for us were not the ones that we guessed that, that we thought. So, so the ones that we thought would work didn't and the ones that we thought wouldn't work did. Um, we mm. basically guessed a whole bunch of things wrong. What we never got wrong was the vision and the mission and the problem we solved that has never changed. So yeah. that, that, that has always been the same, the, the problem we solve and the way we solve it, but the way we explain it and the ch- marketing channels and the type of customer, all that's kind of evolved uh, over time. And so I'd recommend in a really measured way trying different things, even if they seem crazy, they seem a bit, maybe this won't work, it's still worth spending five grand, $5,000 or a bit of time or whatever to, to try it. Um, and, and the other thing about channels is that something might not work a year ago, but it will work a year from now um, mm-hmm. because the market changes or your product changes. And so it's worth also trying things again later on. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of identify with that. If you, if you solve like a big core problem, you've identified one, then that might be the, the main constant in your company and, and things around it might might kind of change, but that will will ultimately keep driving the the, well, the company. That's right. A bit, a bit back to um, today and and what you're doing. You know, what is it that that keeps you personally up at night lately? What are the things that you uh, that you're really spending your your energy on? Yeah. So I heard someone. Uh, one say that there are three jobs for an early stage uh, CEO. Um, not don't run out of money. 
Mm-hmm. Build a great te- build a great team is the second one, and and the third is kind of a combination of you know tell the story and and get product market fit, which are, which can be similar things because because you you're essentially having to tell the story to the market to to get the product into the hands of the right people, um, and that third one used to keep me up at night. Um, now less so because we're, we've been growing um, fast and things are sort of clicking. Um, but the other two, the other two keep me up at night. So um, capital um, and, mm. and, and the team. So I, I think I, I spend a lot of time um, thinking about how to capitalize the company and the team and they're related. So for example, capital is not just about raising money it's also about what should the burn rate be um are we spending too much are we spending not enough so i kind of see my job as allocating capital to the right things and you know for example if i think the burn rate's too high well does that mean we have to make a change in personnel and you can just see how that thought alone can keep you up at night having to Mm -hmm. fire someone you know having to hold back on things. So I think they're the things that trouble me the most um, that I kind of lose sleep over. Am I, am I making the right decisions about hiring and firing and um, how quickly to invest um, and make sure that the company has enough capital to continue so that we can um, reinvest and, and grow at the rate that we want to and basically keep everything going. Yeah. What is, what is kind of your approach towards um, when to invest in a certain thing like marketing or an extra developer or um, how, how do you decide when it's the right moment? Yeah, so we, we sort of, uh, we think about what our objectives are and, we, and then we think about um, what are the probabilities of success. So for example, um, let's say that um, if our objective is to, um, l- let me take a hypothetical. Let's say that we're converting very well, but we don't have enough traffic. Okay. Um, mm. and, and so, so if our funnel works pretty well or our sales team is selling well, but we need more, uh, leads, um, then we'll look at all the ways to get, to get leads and, um, get traffic. And if we know that SEO works well for us and it it happens for us that's a good example because seo does work um we get a lot of inbound interest from organic search um and it's also a channel that converts very well for us so so then we say okay how do we invest in seo um and you know that the answer to that can actually be hire another engineer um because there are a whole bunch of things that you can do um, or hire a designer. There are a whole bunch of things that you can do on the site, or it might be get an agency and and um, invest in link building. So then the next step is what's that going to cost me per month, okay? And then you compare that to other channels. So there might be another channel that we think will end up returning, having the same return, but cost three times as much to invest in. So we sort of look at what problem are we trying to solve? What's the return we're going to get? And what's the investment that, that we need to make? And there are some things that we know. I'll give you another example. We know that conferences work really well. 
but they're expensive because you have to fly to wherever in the US and it costs a lot of money. So there are certain things that we know work, but they're too hard to invest in. There are other things that we know work and they make a lot of sense to invest in. And there are other things that we are not sure if they work or maybe we've, we've ruled them out. Um, now, the, the most frustrating thing is when you know something works, you want to do it, but you don't have enough money to do it. And then, then it becomes a question of, okay, should you actually raise more money um, rather than, than delay? Because it's very frustrating to think that you can invest in a channel that's profitable, um, but, but you don't have, you're constrained and you don't have the ability to do that. Yeah, I got it. And then that's when you think about raising, but to, to go about raising, then you need to, I mean, you need to need a lot of money, at least if you're going for, for sort of a VC capital, I suppose. Uh, otherwise, yeah. a loan is easy. But Yeah, so when we think about a capital, a, a sort of a good story for investment is to say, we have a lot of traction and we have growth. Um, we know where to invest, but we're constrained because investors essentially want to know that if they, um, I, I mean, in the beginning, it's very different when you're sort of doing pre-seed or kind of seed, then they're kind of asking like, okay, they don't expect you to have a lot of traction. So they, or, or maybe you have nothing and they sort of, the questions they ask are, well, is this thing going to work? And are you the right team to give it a good go? But once you get into revenue, essentially investors want to know if I give you money, do you know how to spend that money? Will you get a return for that, for that money? Can we pour fuel? And they don't want you to be guessing. And so a good story to have is to say, well, we know how to access more customers. We've proven that we can get customers and convert them and, and, and whatever, whatever the cycle happens to be. In our case, we do pilots that then convert to an expansion and we've done that enough times. So then now we need money to go and get a thousand more of them and we know where to get them and how to get them, but we don't have the money in the bank to go do that. And that's a, typically a good story for investors as opposed to I'm going to guess an experiment with your money. No one wants to hear that. Um, mm. Certainly not once you've got a product. Yeah. Cool. It sounds like you have a very pragmatic uh, approach about, uh, about all these things, um, about how to run a company. Now, I'm, I'm wondering when running it, uh, what are exactly, exactly the things that give you energy? Like, why do you do it? What, what, what keeps you getting out of bed every morning? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, my co-founder and I are very different people. We both have a very strong need for intellectual stimulation, mm -hmm. um, and but 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 he doesn't want to manage people, and he he wants to be kind of an individual contributor. So he wants to sit in a room with a whiteboard and solve problems and um, innovate and come up with kind of the next product innovation. Whereas I like to, I get my energy from people and particularly from the market. So I like to talk to customers. There's nothing more energizing for me than talking to a customer. And, and so I like to also get out into the market and have conversations. Um, 
talk to investors, talk to people that are in the industry, talk to other founders, talk to other companies doing things in a, in a, in a similar space. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go and give presentations at conferences. I don't necessarily love doing that. That can be quite terrifying, but, um, but I, I do like to spend time with customers and in the market. Uh, and I love to spend time with the team. Um, when I feel uh, flat, I, I, I usually, usually that's a sign that I've spent too much time at the, in the office. And so I basically, I kind of have this, um, uh, I learned this early on, um, you know, someone once taught me, if you're ever feeling down, uh, go talk to a customer. Uh, and I think that's very applicable to me because it, it absolutely works. You, you just feel energized again. Certainly I do. Um, and, and it's kind of, to me, that's like the real thing. Like my job is not to do business inside the company. It's to do business with, uh, with the world and tell our story. So I get a lot of energy from, from doing that. And I, and the other thing is celebrating little small victories. So, um, uh, you know, uh, we just today, uh, true story. We, we just got ISO 27001 certified. So that's, uh, you know, that's like a security, um, uh, thing. And, and that's not, it's not a sexy thing, but you know, wow, it was so much work. And that kind of sends a really strong signal to the market that we take information security very seriously and we invested so much in that. And for the enterprise, it's important. I wouldn't recommend if you're selling to SMB or startups, I wouldn't recommend going through that process. But, you know, we have to celebrate that. That's like a great milestone. Um, or if or when we get feedback from a customer or one of our customers' candidates, you know, we love that. That's just, it, it, it's little things. It's not just revenue or, or kind of the, the financials. And I think that they're the things that give all of us um, energy in the company. Yeah. Uh, how, how do I have to imagine a day in your at least professional life? Wow. I mean, <laughs> sometimes people, you, you know, all those people who, um, you read about like the Tim Ferriss kind of the, the people mm. that, that, that get up at 4am and, and drink mango juice and whatever and meditate. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not one of them. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite. So I, I do meditate by the way, sometimes, but basically I kind of have quite a chaotic schedule. And part of that is because, uh, I live in Melbourne and our sales team is in the U S and we have customers in the U S and a board member. And so much of our companies and our engineers are in Europe and, you know, we're distributed globally. So, so much of our companies sort of around the world in terms of the team and customers and investors uh, that I basically spend so much of my time on the phone or video to people in different time zones. And, and I just learned that there's no way to structure. I have to be flexible. There's no point trying to kind of structure my day. So, what I do instead is I kind of embrace that. Um, and I, I, you know, I have phone calls with people at 6am while I'm walking the dog and getting a coffee. And sometimes I'll go to the gym in the middle of, you know, in the afternoon when it's quieter and I kind of, I use the flexibility to my advantage. Um, but, but I mean, I, in terms of what I do, 
uh, I basically spend my time on the three things that I said. I try and spend as much time as I can outside the company on the market. So helping the sales team, uh, doing sort of media and PR and telling the company's story. And then the next thing is the team, um, spending time with the people in our, in our team. And then thinking, I, I also need to spend time thinking and making sure that I don't become kind of um, too in the weeds and, and that I'm not missing something big. So, you know, sometimes I go for a walk and try and step away and or talk to one of our advisors and make sure that I'm investing my time on the right things and not and not kind of like micromanaging or doing silly things that someone else can do. Yeah. When when uh, when uh, when you hear you explain all these things you do, one might wonder like how you keep all these things balanced. Not very well. Um, I, I, I don't think I'm a good example of like the sort of work-life balance. Um, what, what, I, what I have improved is um, I, a couple things that I've over time improved. One, I've been able to give some things up and basically step away from them and just, just stop doing them and let someone else in the team do them. And, and that has been very good both for me and for the rest of the team because actually they're very capable and then I can just butt out and it's given people an opportunity to step up. Um, so I've, I've learned to do that. I've learned to kind of focus my time on fewer things. And the other thing I've learned to do not very well still, but better is to switch off. Um, I, I went last year I had to spend three weeks in the US, um, so I flew ten days earlier. And for the first nine days, I went hiking in Utah, no phone, completely like disconnected from the world. I, I had no idea what was happening in the company. I didn't look at one email. I, I basically, I turned off all notifications and put um, all the apps kind of on. All I had on my phone was Instagram. And mm. and what and WhatsApp to talk to my son and my wife, but no, like no work. And it took me two days. The first two days, I was kind of very anxious, and then after that, I totally just disconnected. And it was so good. I I, I just got to such a healthy place, and I came back and I was relaxed. And actually, the team had the best week ever um, <laughs> at that at that point. <laughs> and that, and and I I didn't feel insecure in fact i felt relieved i felt like wow that's so good i can actually now just step away and like focus on bigger things and not micromanaging and um that that taught me a really important lesson i think i think everyone was happier after that yeah what do you actually like to spend your time on when you're not working so i have i have i'm married and i have a, a three-year-old boy and we have a dog and so I try and spend as much time as possible with them and between work and family, there's not a lot left, mm -hmm. but I, but, but the two other things I really like is, you know, I, I read and, and I consume a lot of information through podcasts and books. I, I have audible. Um, I use audible a lot and it's not always work. Um, I, I consume a lot of, I, I just like to educate myself on a lot of things and I also like getting outside. I like 
I like nature and I'm very fortunate to live in a beautiful area near, near a river and I can, I walk a lot with my dog and clear my head and, and I, I like to get sort of get outside. Um, and, and that, that helps me as well. So they're, they're the main, they're the main things that, that I do. It's basically work, family, nature, and education. And they're not always separate from each other. Sometimes I'm walking outside while listening to a podcast and, and then, then I'll talk to someone on the phone, but they're the things that I tend to spend my time on. Yeah. Talking about books and slowly wrapping up, uh, what's the latest good book you've read and why did you choose to read it? So uh, now, now I'm actually, I'm actually listening to predictable revenue, which is kind of very technical, but, um, I mean, some of the books that, uh, that I've really, really enjoyed, um, the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz, that's probably the number one book I'd recommend for founders. Mm -hmm. Um, because, because it's, it's kind of, it's very raw and self-deprecating and he, and he really kind of explains the pain. There were so many things there that I identified with. Um, and, and, and I listened to, um, the Sasta podcast a lot. I think that's a great resource for anyone in SAS, um, mm-hmm. thinking about, some of the problems as you're building and, uh, and, and growing a company. Another book is, um, Peter Thiel zero to one is a great, is a great book for people, for entrepreneurs. Um, and there are sort of a lot of books around modern monopolies. There are a lot of books around those kind of themes that, um, that I found, um, very helpful and basically anything that Seth Godin does, Mm-hmm. I also I also would recommend he's just a he's just a very unusual thinker and I like I like his style and the way that he thinks about things so um so yeah that's uh that's another anything by Seth Godin anything by Seth Godin is there anything you you wish you would have known when you started out with Verbal I think I think um I, I didn't appreciate the value of getting good advice and we now have an advisory board that's so helpful, but I think we could have used the right advisors in the beginning. Um, it's so helpful. Uh, first of all, just to have someone who kind of understands what you're going through is, is reassuring, even if they're not even, helping you, but just, just to talk through things and for them to tell you, actually, it's okay. This is normal. Um, it's not as bad as you think you're actually going better than you think or, or whatever. Um, but then second to have people who can help you in a specific, uh, whether they're, um, in the industry or whether they've just, um, built companies and, um, you know, they can help you solve a problem because, the the there's a very high chance that every mistake you make as a founder someone else has made it already and sometimes when i think about the founder journey i think i think about it like this the goal of a founder is to avoid making as many mistakes as possible basically because you know you you're going to make a ton of them but 
if you can somehow learn from someone else and avoid some of the mistakes, then you'll, you'll get to the answer quicker or spend less money on the way to getting there. And a really good way to do that is having good advisors. And I think we, it took us a while to kind of, uh, act on that. So that, that's kind of a huge, um, a huge learning for us. And, and the other one is, I don't know if we could have done anything different, but what we discussed before around, I would have loved to know how to explain the value of what we do earlier and maybe working with someone who's really good at branding or communication very early on, like, like before we even built the product, maybe if I had my mm-hmm. time again, you know, maybe what we would have done if we had our time again was to like spend a little bit of time and money with someone who's an expert in, in that and say, listen, this is our vision. Help us articulate it even before we write a line of code. That, that probably would have been worth doing and then tell our story. It would have helped us also validate demand much, much earlier. So they're probably the two things. Yeah. A little bridge from the, and, if, and also the, the, the final question. What is the best piece of business advice you ever got? Wow. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, so, so many um, I, I mean, I've learned so much. I, I, I don't know if, um, if, if there's one thing, A reason um, yeah, I mean, I mean, some of the things that, that I've been, um, that I've been learning very recently, um, have to do with, um, trusting, trusting the team and, and, and stepping away and sort of empowering people. I know that sounds obvious, but I think founders are really bad at it because you're infatuated with your own creation. And, and I think, um, the, the ability to do that, it typically results in a positive outcome, um, because people feel more empowered. They typically, there's a reason you hired them and they're capable um, and you also um, feel relieved. And then the other, the other sort of um, area that's not talked about enough is mental health um, or it's talked about, but I don't think people act on it enough is sort of mental health for founders um, and, and really looking after yourself and making sure that because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I think if you can stay healthy and focused and have a clear mind, you can make better decisions for your company. So sometimes the best thing you can do is nothing and step away and actually disconnect and you end up contributing more um, to your company. Sorry, I'm not sure if that's what you were hoping to hear, but that's, that's what I've got. It's perfect. Thank you again, Omar, for being on Founder Coffee. It was really great to have you. Thanks so much. Great chatting with you. That's it for this episode of Founder Coffee. We hope you liked it. Let the world know if you did. Thanks for listening, guys.